Well, we only have, uh, we only have three weeks left in our Exodus series. Can you believe it? Uh, only three more weeks to go, and it's been an epic journey. Uh, this is week 22 of the series, and uh, if you've been with us, uh, even for just a portion of the series, uh, I'm sure that you felt challenged by God in the areas that He wants to meet you, grow you, stretch you, challenge you, the way He wants to shape and form you to be more like Him. And in particular, the way that He wants to continue to purge out of us some of the brokenness that it's so easy for us to carry around with us. And as we enter into the final three weeks of the series, we're really entering into what I would consider the core teachings of what this whole series has been about. So if this is your first time to the Exodus series, you've just saved yourselves 22 weeks. Well done. <laughs> I encourage you to go back and have a listen. But these final three weeks are really God welcoming us into the very things that he's been preparing you for. And so if you've been part of this journey for whatever amount of time that may be for you, these three weeks, I think, are the most fundamental where all the threads that God has been doing throughout this story are going to be tied together. And this week begins it off the back of what we saw happen last week. Last week we were in chapter 32 of Exodus, perhaps the hardest, most brutal chapter of the whole story, where just off the back of this incredible experience with God on the mountain and God's presence with his people and the giving of the law and the very second commandment not to commit idolatry, in chapter 32, we see Israel do that very thing. The very thing that God had called them not to do, they enter into. And they take the, the gold that they had taken and plundered from Egypt, and they burn the gold down, and they fashion a golden calf, and they set the golden calf up as something to worship because it was tangible to them, where God seemed intangible. God seemed far away. God seemed a scary thing on a mountain. They wanted to create a golden animal so they could worship something that was more concrete and tangible for them. And I said last week that what we see in that story are three temptations that every church community faces, and I would say three temptations particularly that we here at the Vine face. And that is the temptation to finish in the flesh the very things that God starts in the Spirit, the temptation to turn our place of worship into our object of worship, and the temptation to recast God into a version that we can handle. A version that fits, if you will, within our comfort levels. And all three of those temptations are idolatries in and of themselves. But I want you to see, and really today is a part two of the message from last week. I want you to see what these three idolatries will move every church into. All three of these have the power to strip a church of the very one thing that gives that church the power to change and transform the society around it, and that is the presence of God. You need to understand that the enemy's strategies about the idolatries that he tempts us with in the church, all of them are designed to strip the church of the presence of God. The enemy does not care about churches that are without the presence of God. Couldn't care less about them. The enemy is not afraid of theological social clubs. Come on, church. The thing that pushes back the gates of hell is nothing less than the presence of God. 
And the presence of God within a church community and that presence of God within the people of that community and that presence of God going from them and through them and out of them and flowing into the corridors of power and the the workplaces that they represent and the, the families that they have and God's presence operating out of that, bringing peace and love and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. That changes a city. And so the reason why God is so upset about Exodus 32 and the golden calf is not just because it reveals what really is truly in our hearts, not just because it shows us that we've broken our covenantal relationship with God. The thing that really upsets him is that he knows that idolatry strips his presence from his people. And when his presence is stripped from his people, his people are stripped from their power because the power is not in us. Surely the power is in the Spirit of God. Amen? This is why Exodus 33, the chapter that follows Exodus 32 and all this stuff about idolatry, Exodus 32, uh, 33 sorry, is all about the battle for the presence of God. And if there's anything that Exodus and the whole story has brought us to is to the pinpoint, the crossroads, if you will, of this battle. Will we fight for the presence of God in our midst or will we choose a different path? It's a question that I think God puts before us as a church community as we draw the series to a close. Do we really want his presence? I mean, like, really want his presence? Do we really want his presence in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our marriages? Like, do we really want his presence with us? Or do we just want the benefits of his presence? I want to show you this by unpacking Exodus 33. It's a bit more of a brighter chapter than Exodus 32, so you can be grateful for that. But there are some challenges here that are sobering also for us. Exodus 33 verse 1, look at this. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, talking about Mount Sinai, you and the people who I have brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land that I promised on oath to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, anyites you could ever imagine, I'm going to drive them out. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. God shows up to Moses and he says this incredible thing. He says, despite everything that I've just encountered in Exodus 32, everything about the golden calf, everything about your idolatry, everything about your sin, despite all that, I am still going to give you the land. I'm still going to come through with my promises for you. I mean, I want you to see the depths of the grace of God in this moment. That even Israel, in their worst moment of sin and brokenness before God and in their relationship with God, God does not remove his promises from them. He says, you will go up, leave this place, and go up to the place that I have provided for you. I still have given you that land, the land of Canaan, the promised land that he has long been calling them towards. And not only that, but he gift wraps the present. He says, I'm going to send an angel ahead of you, and that angel is going to drive out all the people that are currently living in that land. You're not going to have to lift a finger. I'm going to basically roll out the red carpet for you, and you're going to move into the promised land. And you read that, and you think, this is a God of grace. Because this is a God 
who should come and remove everything from his people. You guys have screwed up. It's all over. And some of you in the room here, that's how you think of God. You, you think if you've screwed up, it's all over when it comes to your relationship with God. You think your brokenness and your sin or the stuff that you've done means that you are on plan D with God, not plan A. And God says to his people, you're not on some plan D here. The exodus is still happening. I've still drawn you out to place you in this land. The promise has not been removed. And that should be an encouragement to some of you here. But I want you to see something really clearly. He does say this, but I will not go with you. (laughs) He says, I'm not going to go with you. In other words, the cost of idolatry is not the promises of God, it's the presence of God. Oh, 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 I'm going to preach on this one. Stay with me. Buckle yourselves in. So the cost of idolatry is not the promises of God. He's like, the promise will still stand. I promised that to your forefathers. I promised that you'd ever wait. In fact, I'm going to send an angel forward to do all that stuff. The cost, though, is that I'm not going to go with you. Because if I went with you, man, I might. I might do some things I don't want to do. So I'm not going to go with you. You can have the promises, but you cannot have me. And in that, God is putting a challenge before Israel that I think he's also putting before us here at the vine in 2023. He's asking them a deep, profound question that he wants them to wrestle with. He's basically saying this, what is ultimately more important to you? Having God's promises in your life or having God's presence in your life? What is ultimately more important to you? Having my promises in your life or having me in your life? Now, on the surface, I know how we're all going to respond. I want God's presence. It must be the presence, right? And I'm Pastor Andrew saying it should be the presence. I've got to take the presence. And I know the natural response for us is to say, presence of God. Yes, we want the presence of God. But if you're anything like me, which I hope you are sometimes, if you're anything like me, you'll probably realize that if you dig a little bit more below the surface from the cheesy answer that you should give and take a fresh look at your prayer life and your worshiping life, and your daily life, you might realize that your answer in your heart is a bit more complex than you might like. If you're anything like me, I think we are all susceptible to developing a relationship with God primarily for what God can do for us. That we pursue God often primarily for his benefits. Because my relationship with Jesus means that I will have a better marriage, that I'll have a better relationship with my kids, that I'll have a better work environment, that I'll be more successful, that my life will generally be better. I'll be a kinder, more naturally loving, a better person. Jesus is my guru to help me to live a better life. Are you, are you with me? Now, now, don't get me wrong. It is great that you want a better life and a better marriage. And God can absolutely help you to have a better marriage, to be better with your kids, to work in your workplace better, to see flourishing happen. All of those things, absolutely, God wants for you. But I want you to see the subtle danger that idolatry brings. And it is that we think that primarily our relationship with God is based on what God can do for us, the benefits of God, the promises of God, the blessings of God. And if we build a relationship with him that is primarily based on what he can do for us, our relationship, our actual relationship is going to suffer. 
Now, let me tell you why it's going to suffer. That if the basis or the foundation of your relationship with God is because he blesses you, he's nice to you, he helps you to be a better person. If that's why you worship him, you will ultimately struggle in your relationship with him. Why? Because a lot of the benefits we want from God are not objective ones, they're subjective ones. They're benefits that we desire, that we want. Not the benefit of salvation or the benefit of objective things that change us in our relationship with God. Those are amazing. But we largely follow him because we want the benefits for us personally. Now, here's the issue with that. We humans are never satisfied. And we humans get really upset at God when he doesn't give us the blessings that we thought he was going to give us. The benefits that we thought was going to come with us. I thought I would be married by now. I thought I would have a better job by now. I thought my marriage would have been sorted out by now because I believe in Jesus. And when our benefits of him are largely subjective, even if those are good subjective things, and when those things don't seem to happen in our lives, the thing that actually breaks down is our relationship with God. Because if your foundation of that relationship is the benefits he brings you, and you perceive that those benefits are not coming, what's going to be infected by that is your relationship with him. Are you with me? We will drive out the presence of God from our lives if we find our presence with God based on what he does for us. He says to Israel, you can have the promised land, but if your focus is the promised land, you will lose me along the way. This is why in Exodus 32, we saw Israel enter into idolatry in the very first place. They got into idolatry like we saw last week because Moses was so long on the mountain. All those timing didn't work out for them. The benefit didn't work out for them. They weren't sure about their future. It was all about them, so they built the golden calf. And when we find our relationship with God primarily about what he does for us rather than just about him then we will find ourselves we will find ourselves walking in his promises without his presence and there is nothing worse than that when you have the promises of god without his presence you have self-help psychology that makes you feel better rather than the transformative power of jesus christ in your life that changes you eternally for good And so this challenge comes to Israel here in chapter 33. And God is saying, what is it that you are going to choose? Ultimately, he's saying this. Do you want me or do you want the things of me? And that is what all of Exodus has been about. It has all been about this one final question. Do you really want me or do you just want the things of me? Because every step of the Exodus journey so far has been God taking his people out of their brokenness and bringing them into a place, not just so that they would experience his benefits, not just so that they would know the promised land, not just because of those things. God has been drawing them out so that he can draw them in. God draws them out so he can draw them in to himself. It's all been about him and his presence with them. It's all been about the power of him being amongst them. It's all been about him coming down to them and living with them and being with them and fostering a life with them. It's been about taking all of these benefits so that you could ultimately know who I am. But it's not about the benefits, the story. The story is about him with his people. Are you following me still? And the problem we have in the church is that we forget that story. And so often it's easy for us in the church to make our experience of God all about the benefits and we miss completely that it's ultimately about him. 
Whether he blesses me or he does good things for me, whether he achieves all of the subjective things that I, he, I want him to achieve in my life, he is still worth worshiping. That is the heart of what Exodus is all about. I think that's the heart that God calls his church to. But if you're anything like me, it's easy to struggle. This is why, uh, actually, Moses writes an aside in this chapter. Verse 7, he, he actually steps back and he shows them what's happened during the journey. He says, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of the tent, watching Moses until he entered into the tent. So Moses went into the tent. The pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw that the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to their tents, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Isn't that beautiful? The intimacy of that relationship. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses puts this in the story here in chapter 33 as a bit of an aside to everything else that God is trying to say. Because he's trying to remind his people, God has been with us. God has always been with us. Every single time we pitched that tent, he came and was present with us. And you all came on the outside of the tents and you're worshiping him. And you are now in danger of throwing all of that away simply because you're focused primarily on what he does for you rather than who he really is. You need to understand why this is so important for God here. Why this question is so critical. And to understand that, you actually have to go back a little bit further than the Exodus story itself. You have to go all the way back to the original creation of the world in Genesis. Because what you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is this beautiful picture right at the end of it. Where God creates humanity and makes humanity in his image. And what picture do we get at the end of Genesis 2? It's the picture of God coming and communing with humanity in the garden. His presence and humanity side by side. And there are so many benefits of Eden. There are so many things that are filled with blessings that are found in Eden. But the most important reality of what we see at the end of Genesis 2 is that God has been created to be in communion with God. It's really important that you see this right at the beginning of the biblical story. That our whole being of what it means to be made in the image of God is to be brought into the presence of God. And so at the end of Genesis chapter 2, this is called shalom. It's called peace. In other words, this is the way things should be. We should be in this communion with God, his presence with us, our presence with him, living in such an intimacy with him. It's like God is with us as a friend. That's the way we have been created to be. And ultimately, our fullness of joy, our fullness of who we are is found in the presence of God. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Are you following that? Which is why in Genesis 3, something really bad happens. See, when sin enters the picture in Genesis 3, the result of that at the end of that chapter is the exile of Adam and Eve from Eden. It is the pushing out of Adam and Eve from the presence of God in the garden. It's important that you track with this. Because we have been created to be in intimate relationship with God, but our sin banishes us into exile. It pushes us out of the presence of God. And when we're in exile, there's a longing that is inside of us. 
See, you have to understand that Adam and Eve are separated from God's presence because of their sin. And when that happens, it creates in all of us our greatest brokenness and our greatest longing. See, we've been created for the presence of God, and it is only in his presence that that brokenness is healed. So that the biblical story is we're created for God's presence, but in our sin, we break the reality of that presence from us, and it creates in us this brokenness and this longing inside of us. And every human being in the world has this longing inside of them, whether they realize where it comes from or not, or whether they realize how to satisfy it or not, that longing is inside all of us. We don't want to be in exile from God's presence. We long as a human race to be back into a place of peace and shalom again. This is why Augustine, one of the greatest writers in church history, St. Augustine, he put it this way. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Isn't that beautiful? You've made us for yourself, but we're restless. There's this unsatisfiedness in us until we find that rest in you, until we find that relationship with you, until that's rebirthed and renewed, we find ourselves in a place of great brokenness and restlessness. It's like I'm not fully the person that I'm supposed to be. This is why in Psalm 42, the psalmist writes, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. What the writer is saying is not this. He's not trying to give you a picture of a nice deer in a lush meadow with an incredibly flowing stream and the deer is lapping it up all happily. He's giving you a picture of a deer who's in a desert, in exile, in wilderness, who is so parched and so thirsty that if he doesn't find water soon, he's going to die. And he says that just as a deer would pants desperately for water, so my soul is panting always for satisfaction. And that can only be found, the psalmist says, in you. This is why what we see happen in Exodus 33 is so key. God puts a crossroads before his people, and he says, do you want me, or do you want the things of me? Because if you decide to remain with just the things of me, you are still in exile. You're still outside of Eden. And the longing of every human soul is how do we get back to being in the presence of God? That's what Exodus has been about. The whole of the Exodus journey has not just been about what God can do to overcome slavery and oppression. It has not just been about how God wants to step in and bring evil to its knees and show his sovereignty over creation. The whole point of the Exodus story leads us to this very point. The Exodus is the story of Eden restored. It's a story of God stepping in and saying, I am now coming to you. Even in your brokenness and sin, my presence is here. God is changing the story. And he's inviting his people to recognize that the story has changed and they can now have the restoration of the very thing that they've longed for the most. So I want you to track with this. Is that all with you? Now, when you get that background, you can understand why in Exodus chapter 32, God is so upset at their idolatry, and why in Exodus 33, he says, the promises haven't gone, but I will not go with you, because there has to be a choice here. You're either going to go choose me or the things of me. That's your choice. But everything I've done in this point is to bring myself to you, because I have drawn you out in order to draw you in. Now, notice how Moses responds to this. 
Verse 12, Moses says to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Now, God's just said, I'm gonna send an angel with you. But Moses goes, I'm not satisfied with an angel. Anyone ever been not satisfied with who you've had to go through life with? Actually, don't answer that. That's a bad question. <laughs> God just said to Moses, I'm going to send an angel with you. And God says, you'll ask me to lead these people, but you haven't told me who's going to go with me. In other words, I'm not happy with an angel. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways. Another way of translating that, show me the way. In other words, I need you to go with me. Show me the way. I don't know how to do it. I can't leave these people. Some angel's not good enough for me. I only want you. You have drawn me out to draw me in. I am in with you. Please do not leave me, Moses is saying. I wonder if some of us can get that in our hearts. God, please don't leave us. We recognize the idolatry that's so in us, and Lord, we know that that drives you away. Lord, we don't want to be in exile again. Notice how God replies in verse 14. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And that's so beautiful. Now, I want you to see something here. The idea of God giving them rest points them back to Eden, to that great place of Shalom where they had rest with God, but it also points them forward to the promised land, which was always promised to be a place of rest. But I want you to see something even more important. Notice the order God says here. My presence will go with you, and then you will know my benefits. In other words, if you seek my benefits without my presence, you will ultimately be an idolatry, because you're in the idolatry of self. And although those promises may not be removed, you're settling for the second best thing. But if my presence goes with you, then out of my presence will flow all of the things you will ever need. And the greatest thing you will ever need is rest with me. Your soul that longs and pants after water like a deer will find its rest in me. Notice how Moses responds. Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. For how will anyone know that you are pleased with us and with your people unless you go with us what else distinguishes me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses is doing amazing theology here. He's saying, we will not go anywhere without your presence because if you haven't restored Eden, if your presence isn't with us, then what message do we have to say to the world? We're no different from the Egyptians if we go to the promised land without your presence because it's your presence with us that communicates to the world that we are welcomed back into God's presence. It means that you're pleased with humanity again. It means that the sin and the brokenness is being paid for and changed. You with us is a message for the world. You with us says that, hey, we have a God who despite our brokenness wants to be with us. We have a God who wants to communicate to us as a friend. We have a God who is worthy to be worshipped. And if we go without you, we've got nothing to say. It's like, it's like Moses is saying, I am nothing without you. We can't do this. There's no point in doing this. We don't want to be a theological social club. We need you. And, and I, I wonder whether that might be the cry of this generation in Hong Kong, in the church in Hong Kong at this time. God, we refuse to do anything unless you're with us. 
Because we have nothing to say to government. We have nothing to say to society. We have nothing to say to our marriages, our businesses, our families, what it means to raise children. We have nothing to say if it doesn't come through you. Your presence, out of your presence, flows all the power to transform and change everything. We can't do it on our own. There's no power in us, Moses is saying. So we will not go unless you go with us. And I wonder whether some of us in this room might get that passion fired up in us. We will not do this without you, Lord. Basically, what we're saying is we're having a holy posture before a broken world, and we're saying we are nothing without the presence of Jesus. There is nothing in this world that can satisfy other than him. It is him or it is nothing. Are you with me? Well, it's easy for us to say yes. Because I want to say yes to that too. But if you really put that into practice in your life, it will change everything for you. The sacrifice of the house saying, me and my house will serve the Lord, is a deep, big call. Not an easy one to make, and not one we should ever make lightly. But it comes out of this place of saying, the presence first. The presence first. It's amazing what the New Testament writers do. The New Testament writers pull all of this together. And they begin to make the threads of God coming and being with his people and restoring the world in Jesus Christ. You see, Exodus is just a foretaste of what's going to happen in Jesus. Exodus is just like a foretelling of a better story. The better story, of course, is the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is why in the New Testament, the writers look at Jesus and they say, he is Emmanuel, God with us. The fullness of God now with us. Not God on a mountain. Not God in some tent, not God even in a temple, not even God in a church, God with us fully, humanity and God together in the incarnation. Emmanuel now, God with us. This is why John, when he starts the gospel that he's writing, the story of Jesus, he says it this way. He says, God has now had the pleasure of taking the word and making it flesh and having it dwell with us. The word dwell there is the word tabernacle, which links back to the passages we're looking at in Exodus. God has decided to come and tabernacle with us in his fullness. This is why when Jesus breathes out his last on the cross, the curtain in the temple is torn too to, to allow people to come into God's presence and allow God's presence to go out to them. This is why Jesus stands in his resurrection before his disciples and says, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the helper that is to come that is gonna fill you and restore you in the only way that that can happen, the fullness of my presence with you. Which is why in Acts chapter two, the disciples are sitting in that room celebrating Pentecost. By the way, Pentecost being the festival that celebrates the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. They're celebrating that and the Holy Spirit is poured out on them in such a big way because the Spirit is now being written on the flesh of their hearts. This is why Paul, when he writes to the church, says, hey, here's the thing. You are now the temple of the Holy Spirit because he now lives fully in you. Our answer is not that we're drawn out of our slavery towards some mountain. We are drawn out of our slavery to Jesus, and in that, Jesus puts his fullness in us. You don't need an Eden anymore. You don't need some mountain with fire and an earthquake. You don't need a tent or a temple. You don't, as much as I love it, need the church. You do, but anyway, that's a whole other story. But what you do need is the fullness of his presence in you. And that is available to anyone who confesses Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The spirit is in us. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now in me. Eden restored. Are you with me? So he has drawn you out. 
so that he could join you in. He's met you in the darkest place and his light has shone in the darkest place. And it's shone into the darkest place to welcome you out of the darkness on a journey towards him. And when you find him, to find yourself settling on him, not on his benefits, not on the things of him, but him himself. And when we were in Egypt, we made a film for you. A film that could express and symbolize this incredible journey that God does in each one of us. And a film that we've created, which I hope, inspires you to come home. Have a look at this. drawn you out to draw you in. May his presence be what everything in you is about. Let me pray for you. Father, we come before you as a, a people who long, long, Lord, to live lives that represent what the Exodus is about, lives that are given to your presence lives that live out of your presence, lives that are drawn into you and that out of you are then sent into the world. Father, I pray that your presence would be on all of our lips.
Lord, it would be the thing that we would desire the most. The thing that would shape and form the vine to be the community that it is. And Lord, just like last week, we take the idolatries that we know are in us that have the power to strip us of your presence. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have the answer. We have Eden restored in its fullness. That even in our brokenness and in our sin, we have one who has taken the price of that and has opened the way for us to be fully known and to be fully back in communion with you. And Lord, I wanna pray now. Maybe you'd be comfortable, you just open your hands with me as I pray this. Father, I wanna pray now for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit over every single person here. That Father, your spirit and your power and your presence would be there everything, Lord. I pray, Lord, for those in this room that have not felt your presence for a long time would know in this moment right here the fullness of your presence. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for those who feel like that dancer in a dark room right now, who can see the shards of light breaking in but don't know what to do. I pray, Lord, that they would feel your presence now drawing them out of that darkness into you. Lord, for those in this room that are like the dancer on the desert who have found freedom but haven't found home yet. Father, for those of us in this room where we put our, your blessings and the things of you above you yourself, would you forgive us and help us to be home? And Lord, for every single one of us, I pray that we would be like her, quiet and attentive in your presence receiving from you the fullness of life. Come, Holy Spirit, come. I want to invite you just to take a moment before we close our service to just pray. You know, our most classic form of connecting with God is through prayer. And so just take some time to pray for yourself and pray with yourself or you might even want to pray with the people that are around you if you feel comfortable to. Maybe pray with your spouse or pray with your friends. Just take some time just to acknowledge God's presence. Confess the desire that you have for his presence in your life and invite more of that presence. And we'll do that in a place of worship.